Well, good evening, everyone. Grace and peace. Good evening, everyone. Grace and peace. There we go. It is uh, so good uh, to be together tonight. I welcome you uh, to Bible study, where you're here, whether you're here in the room with us or you're uh, joining us online. Uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, I send uh, greetings from Pastor Kurt. I actually went over to Kurt's house yesterday and we visited for about 15 or 20 minutes and Kurt seems to be doing really well, um, you know, taking it one day at a time and i um, grateful for that. He thinks he may come into the office for a little while on Monday and uh, he's got to then fly to Houston on Tuesday uh, to go back to the doctor for his uh, uh, checkup uh, with the doctor and then uh, we'll see after that. Uh, so y'all keep holding Pastor Kurt in your prayers, but he is on schedule it seems like uh, for sure, so we are Definitely grateful for that. So uh, last week, uh, we talked about the most often quoted uh, Old Testament passage in the New Testament, right? And that was what? Wah, wah, wah. What was it? Psalm 110. Very good. Yeah, that of all the of all the passages in the Old Testament, that's the one that's quoted the most by the New Testament authors. All right, so you ready for your quiz for today? What is the shortest chapter in the Bible? Go. Who said it? No, the shortest chapter, not the shortest book. Any, it's in the Psalms. Good. Anybody? All right, y'all should y'all should get y'all y'all should start being able to anticipate these things. Uh, Psalm one ten was the answer last week, right? There we go. Psalm one seventeen. Good job, Kit. Good job. I don't have any flowers for you, but anyway, yeah. So it's interesting that um, of all the chapters in the Bible, Psalm one seventeen uh, is uh, the shortest, and of course, then that means it's also uh, the shortest Psalm. And so, I do think it's interesting. I, I don't think that that was an accident by the uh, editors. Who put the psalms together? We there was more than 150 psalms floating around, right? And so when they put them all together, they chose those 150 for a purpose. And my assumption is is that they chose the shortest one to be there for a purpose too. So as we pray Psalm 117 tonight, consider why in the world the uh, people who, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put the Psalms together, would have chosen this one as the shortest. Psalm 117, let's pray. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said, Amen. Well, tonight, as we continue in our study of the book of Colossians, we find ourselves in uh, chapter 3. That's the major break in uh, the book of Colossians. Um, You really divide uh, the book up into two parts. Uh, The uh, first part is basically establishing the so what 
if these things are true, then chapter 3, this then is how we are to order and arrange our lives. Paul does this uh, pretty regularly in his writings. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, that's the big break. Uh, Romans chapter 12, that's the big break. It is the, it's the same sort of structure. He says different things and uh, in both parts of all of those books, but very much the same. If this is true, <laughs> then this is how we're made to live. And so we turn that corner tonight. So kind of the, the three big themes that I want you to carry over from, uh, from uh, our study in chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians. Number one, that Jesus is unsurpassingly great. That there is nothing that can compare with the risen Christ. Colossians 1.15 is kind of the, uh, the thesis statement for that theme. That he is the image of the invisible God. Remember that word for image in Greek is? Anybody? Anybody? Icon. That is the word in Greek is icon. So whenever we say icon, we're using a Greek word. That when when people looked at Jesus, they saw God. An exact representation of God's being. They saw when they, so nothing greater than that, right? Nothing. And so there's going to be all sorts of of things that are going to try to convince you otherwise, right? Um, Other ways of looking at the world, other ways of looking at ourselves, other ways in which we uh, seek to relate to the various uh, possibilities in the world, cultural Pressure is real. Cultures, uh, just like the prevalent culture in Midland, the prevalent culture in the United States, and those are not always the same, right? Now, there's always this this uh, this sense, this drive nationwide for independence. We call July Fourth what? Independence Day, and we love it, right? But there's parts of this independent spirit that are not biblically uh, in line with the kingdom of God. So you got to be aware. And you got to have your, remember when we talked about it? Remember what the co- our coaches used to tell us? Well, certainly they told uh, football players this. Guys, when they're mad especially, get your head in the game. Because where were our heads? Well, we won't talk about that. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's like they were, we we did all this preparation and then we're distracted by the strength, by the cunningness of our opponent. And we forget what we practiced. We forget what we learned and we don't play well because our heads are not in the game. And so these cultural pressures to conform to other things besides keeping us focused on the risen Christ. It's very real. Uh, Pastor Kurt, before he had surgery, he was doing such a great job of showing that that temptation was very real from a uh, Gentile Gnostic perspective. And the Gnostics, the main thing that they were teaching is that there is this secret hidden knowledge 
That if you just look for it hard enough, you will be awakened and illuminated, and that will make all things well. That the body, the flesh, was worthless. It was, in fact, evil. And that is not biblical. Our bodies are beautiful. Our bodies are gifts that God has given us. And it's not just this tent that houses our soul. It is much more than that. And we'll talk about that uh, some more later on. So there's the temptation from the Gnostics. There's also this, this temptation from, um, you know, there's this reality of Jewish and Gentile people coming together to follow Jesus. And there's always going to be this push on both sides that says, I don't have to do that. A Gentile would say to a Jewish Christian, and the Jewish Christians would say, well, hold on a second. There's no way you can be a follower of God if you're touching or eating that, right? Or you're not celebrating our special days. And so there's this tension in the community, and it is what, what Paul is saying is that's, that's a peripheral cultural tension. What is Jesus saying when we get our head in the game and we focus on him, right? And, um, and so that is what he says in chapter 2, verse 8, to be careful. Be careful or we will be distracted and we will pull away from focus on the unsurpassing greatness of Jesus. And then the third thing that Paul unveils for us in these first two chapters is the reality of exactly what Christ has done for us. Uh, 121, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. That's a a direct uh, challenge to these Gnostics. Uh, He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say so that when you die, you go to heaven. But he says to present you holy in his sight now. Right? So it's this, uh, this preparation. When Paul says that in 121, that prepares us for what he's going to really unfurl in chapter 3. All right. Um, another place uh, that this, what, what God has done in Christ is 2.13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive. This is the work of God in us. It is an act, a supreme act of grace that God has entered into humanity and he has died and he has made us alive with Christ. And that's, a chapter, that's chapter 2, verse 13. Just that with Christ, just underlined it, with Christ, in Christ. Uh, very important phrases that Paul uses all throughout his letters and especially here in uh, Colossians. Questions before we delve into the riches of chapter 3. I hope at least some of you are taking on the challenge to memorize chapter 3, 1 through 17. Uh, These words can become for us a means of grace 
that when that pressure comes, when we are tempted to let our guard down, that we have something to hold on to, to keep us anchored in the risen Christ. What I thought I would do uh, to kind of get us going, and we, we have the we have the NIV pulled up. What I want to do is to go ahead and um, we're just going to read this together. We've never done anything like that before, right? We're going to read these 17 verses together. Uh, you can follow along uh, on the screen. And uh, this will get us ready for our discussion for the next probably two, uh, two, two and a half weeks. Everybody ready? Let's focus in. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen indeed. So I want you to look at this card uh, that I gave you when you came in. Hopefully if you didn't get one, Daniel will bring you one. Everybody have one? Oh, Daniel, I've got some more up here. Anybody need one? All right, Gene. So I've got a couple of, I've got three quotes on here. And this is more for you to, just so you have these quotes and um, that you have some space tonight to take some notes. 
Um, I, it, I actually came across this second quote on the, uh, on, uh, the sheet today from James Brian Smith as I was getting ready today, but it reminded me of the first quote because I think the, the, the two quotes work well uh, together. And I want you to think about these quotes in terms of us knowing these 17 verses well. Like I'm convinced that if we can kind of let these 17 verses like really sink into the core of our being, understand them, trust them, and live them, man, we will be well on the way to being the people that God has made us to be. And so... Just consider this, so not only just these 17 verses, but the, but the Bible in general. This is what the, the scripture is intended to do when we read it, when we ponder it, and when we take it to heart. There's always three things that happen that need to happen when we read scripture. Read it or hear it, ponder what it means, and make the choice to live it out. That is, that is, it's, it's then when we really know scripture, right? When we live it out. So uh, Robert Mulholland, uh, one of my professors at seminary, he says this about the nature of scripture. And he's riffing off of, uh, of John chapter one, the gospel of John chapter one. It says, the word became text to provide a place of transforming encounter with God so that the word might become flesh in us for the sake of the world. So it's like this this word becomes living and alive and active in our life. It is doing the guiding and the directing and the leading. And it's not just for our own sake. Not just for the abundance of our own soul, but just like when we, think about this, when we, when, when, the, when the disciples, when the people that were alive, when Jesus, went, when they saw him, they were looking at God, right? That insofar as we allow the word of God to have its way in us, that we allow the word of God to become flesh in us, When the world looks at us, I don't think they see God, but maybe they think of God. What do you think? That when we, the big five, right? Compassion and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithful. When they experience that in us, I wonder if that's how God really is. And so I think James brought those, these two work together really, really well. Just as the word became flesh in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, the word, just as the word became flesh in Jesus, so also our flesh becomes a word. Remember the Gnostics said the body was evil. Paul's not buying it. Uh, he, he, the, the, all, all throughout Christian history, it's, it's, it's a heresy to say the body is evil, right? The physical body is, that our, that our bodies are to serve as an icon to point people to God. 
And that when we allow the word of God, and uh, in particular these 17 verses that we're going to be covering the next couple of weeks, when we allow them to take up residence in us, our flesh then becomes a word to the hurting and broken world that we live in. There's a lot on the line with this stuff, right? So much. And then we'll get to the third, we'll get to the third quote uh, here in just a little while. All right. So holding all of that intention here, this is what, let's focus in on these first uh, four verses for just a little while. Since then, he's already said it. He's already said it earlier in the book. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind. So do you have heart and mind in, both, in, in your translations in those two verses? Everybody has heart and mind? Does anybody have mind twice or heart twice? I'm not sure why our translators do this because I think it's the same word. Maybe they're trying to be creative. I'm not sure. But I think what he is saying here, I think for a, um, a Jewish hearer of this, heart works the best. They're going to hear, you know, for, for the Jewish person, the, the heart was the seat of everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? And so um, for a Gentile, mind probably works better. Regardless, what Paul is saying is the seat of your being needs to be oriented towards Christ, towards the things above. What might you ask are the things above? Well, you're in luck. The things above are going to follow in this chapter. And it's very, very practical. It's not this, ooh, special knowledge or whatever. Just very practical living and being in the world. And we'll get to that. But here we go. You've been raised. You are no longer dead. So much of these, three, these uh, four verses send us back to a conversation in the garden. And we'll, we'll unpack that here in a little bit. But remember, there was death that happened in the garden, right, when they ate the fruit. It is that that is being reversed when we are raised with Christ. It is that death that's being reversed. Verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I want to just invite you to underline uh, verse 3 there. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. These are some seriously charged words uh, that Paul shares with us here. Think, like, when you really begin to ponder them, these words and these four verses are supposed to do about at least two things. They're supposed to build some major confidence in you. If you've got pressure from the culture saying, wait a second, this is how you experience abundant life in this world. 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Right? That's back in uh, chapter 2, verse 21. If you just do those things, then you're going to have a full life. Right? Paul's like, wait a second. Hold on. There are things above. And these words are supposed to instill in us a great confidence. Second, not only is it supposed to build confidence, it is supposed to bring with them a sense of life lived enthusiastically. Question. The way of Jesus is narrow or wide? And everybody says? Hmm. And what if I said it's actually both? And that the scripture indicates it's actually both. We all know, most of us probably for the most part know Matthew 7, 13 and 14. That's when Jesus says, wide is the gate and wide is the way that leads to destruction and many find it. But narrow is the gate and narrow the way that leads to life and few find it. So ponder us setting out on this narrow way. And certainly in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, part of the narrow way, are you ready for it? Is loving our enemies. Actually arranging our life in such a way that we will the good of those who are seeking to take life from us. From one degree or another. <sighs> I don't know about you, but that's just a little bit of a hard sell. Are we in agreement with that? That's tough to do. So we set out on this narrow way. It's like, okay, Jesus, I'm going, I am going to love my enemy. And instead of loving your enemy, when your enemy flares up at you, you flare back up and you. Uh, Take revenge instead. And then you repent of that and you say to God, God, I'm going to do better. And then you have this experience where you actually love your enemy. And you love them and they hit you back in the jaw. But you love them again. And you love them again. And all of a sudden, this seemingly narrow place starts to open up wider and wider and wider. I mean, it's just like with anything. Like, I get enamored with people that can play the guitar or the mandolin or something just really well. And they're just, they're just going to town on it and it's like, wow, it just seems like it's second nature to them. Well, how did it become second nature? Because they were focused and they practiced and they trusted that by putting in the effort that it would become easy to the point of second nature. Right? That is the same with trusting in the goodness of in the way of God. That as we become enthusiastically committed to living these things out, 
the way widens up. So turn in, turn over in the, in the Old Testament. Pastor Kurt will be proud of us, right? Getting over to the Old Testament. Second uh, Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 22. This is a psalm uh, that David uh, actually prayed. And as he's uh, praying through various things in uh, chapter 22, he gets to this. Uh, chapter, 20, er, ver- chapter 22, verse 37. You provide a broad path. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. And I think that's, that's how you make sense of those two passages together. Yes, it's narrow. Yes, it seems hard. But as you trust it, it's like, this is how I was made to live after all. Because in fact, this is who God is. God is someone who deeply loves his enemies. So us being made in God's image would be people that are also made to love our enemies. And as we believe that, the path will indeed open up and become like this beautiful, easy path. Questions on what's, what this, this is supposed to give us confidence. It's supposed to give us enthusiasm and let's just start to unpack in, in that light, what does it mean for our life to be hidden with Christ in God? Hmm. Hold on, hold on. We've got we to get you on the microphone. No, we got to, because there's people online. And so it's like loving these people online so they can hear your voice. All right, go ahead. Well, they're going to hear that I want to know what verse that Second Samuel was. Oh, again, could you repeat that? Second Samuel it's twenty-two, twenty-two thirty-seven. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. <clears throat> All right. So, want to have, I want to have your mind here in Colossians three. And I want you to have your minds in also Genesis uh, chapters 2 and 3 at the same time as we, uh, we go through this. Remember, um, as, Adam was convert- as God was conversing with Adam, said, all of these trees, I give them t- to you for food. Eat, enjoy, be filled. Except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely Die. Okay, there, there, there is this, and we know that they eat, right? And so there is this death that comes. And it is this, this death, of course it's not immediate physical death, but it is a death nonetheless because they uh, leave the presence of God. That, that's what is life, you know, this river theme that we've been kind of, the, the river of life, it is life in connection, in communion with God. That is what uh, rubs death out of the way. And, and, and so it is that death that Adam experienced that he is then passed down. 
to every human being that has ever been born, save one, Jesus. It is that reality that has been passed down to all of us. And so it is that that Jesus is reversing as we are raised with him. For you, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When God shows up in the garden, what, does, what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. They hide because they are afraid. They hide because they are ashamed. And they, they express that, that fear and that shame in division. Remember, the finger pointing starts immediately. Like in our marriages, when we start assessing blame, you are living in your marriage just like Adam and Eve were living in the garden after they ate. So be careful when you blame your spouse for stuff. Because what happens is, is that the result of the fear and the shame drives us to autonomous solitude. We were made to be in communion with each other and to be in communion with God. And when we choose autonomy over and against God, the way that all, this all plays out is we end up being alone. Remember what God said? It's not good for man to be alone. That is the result of sin, is that we end up being shameful, fearful, autonomous, autonomous and alone. All right? And so now, because of the intervention of Jesus into the human project, in a way that God had not intervened in the past. I love how, how, how the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various, various ways. God was speaking. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Right? And so we've been raised because we died. There's this death that we died, and now our resurrection life, it is a life, ironically, that is a life of hiding. Adam and Eve were hiding in the garden from God. But our life with Jesus is also a life with hiding. But it is a hiding in God. It's the exact opposite. Hiding away from God, and now our life is hiding in God, is what is uh, being said here. All right. So, based off some things that have been, been uh, said earlier in the book, um, what does that look like? I mean, ponder that. I have a hard time getting my mind around exactly how this looks. Um, 
an author uh, that several people in the church here like a lot, James Brian Smith, who, who I quoted here, uh, he, he uh, kind of images this picture as Russian nesting dolls. That was Nacho Libre if you didn't, didn't catch it. Um, and so a Russian, you know, everybody knows what a Russian nesting doll is, don't you? That you take the one out and then there's a smaller one in and then you open that one and you take it out. And he uh, tells a story about one of his students. He teaches at Fringe University about one of his students who was Russian. And she, he gave uh, him a, I can't remember the name of it, Russian nesting doll. And it just had two. Most of them, the ones I've seen, we have a Santa Claus at our house that's got like six Santa Clauses in it. And the twins always lose them and we always have to find them. It's a mess, right? Because you've got to have them all there for it, to, for it to be right. And so, and so that's, that was kind of his picture of it. That on the outside is God. And then when you open it up, there inside is us. But kind of like the way I see it is that there's got to be two pieces that are in the same level. Because what he says is our life is now hidden with Christ. So here we are with Christ in God. So like Christ is shoulder to shoulder with us. And our life is hidden with God. All right, that starts to address some big questions. Like some of the biggest questions that humans ask, who am I? Where am I? Right? And then underneath those questions, there's some, there's some other uh, other questions that are kind of supplemental to those is, do I matter? And am I safe? A way that I like to answer or to ask those questions is this, and you can write it on your write it on your notes in there. And I think we might have tackled it a little bit last week. I can't remember for sure. Um, what makes you feel good about you being you? These are, this is a big word, these are existential questions. Like, why do I exist? Who am I? I mean, you can start answering that question. Uh, well, I am busy. I mean, that is the most common answer whenever I ask somebody how they are. That is what you get. I am busy. You know what the second most common response is? I am tired. Okay. This is starting to reveal to us the American way. That we arrange our lives to the point that we're busy and tired most of the time. I've yet to ask somebody how they are. Oh, I get Occasionally I'll get, I'm doing really good. I've never heard anybody say, you know... My schedule is well balanced and I'm well rested. <laughs> Never hear that one, right? But man, that might be a gold mine. Uh, who am I? 
I am fat. I spent a lot of my life saying that that's who I am. Right? Um, I am successful. I am... uh, You just keep filling in the blanks. I am beautiful. I am... What are some other ones? What's that? I'm at Mark, right? Smart. Smart. Thank you. Okay. Y'all, my hearing is going. Pray for me. I am smart. That's right. Funny. I am an architect. We say that, right? Yeah. Like we become, we, we start to conflate what we do with who we are. I am a pastor. I am retired. I don't do anything anymore. I mean, it just kind of, kind of, you know, you know the, the the highest rates of suicide are around eighteen years old when people aren't really doing anything yet. And retirees, because they don't do anything anymore. Because we find our value in what we do. So the other question is, where am I? I am on the, this is what people could say, I am on the outside looking in. Or I'm on the fringes, I'm on the inside looking out. I mean, it could be that too. This is the question, this is the first question that God ever asks anyone. He asks Adam, where are you? God was not asking Adam that question because God did not know where he was. We believe that God is, God, God is, no, is all-knowing. He knew where Adam was. He was asking Adam that for Adam. Where are you? As in, why have you chosen to wander outside, to use our river, river uh, metaphor, to wander outside the river of my love and my grace? And this, this phrase here in chapter 3, or in yeah chapter 3 verse uh, verse 3 where am i uh i'm with christ that's what it says here right that if we are that if we have been raised uh with christ that we have received the grace of god we have trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord. Our our new foundational reality always and forever is, where am I? I'm with Christ. And if you turn back over, so picture picture Jesus right by your shoulder, uh, and then read verse 15 again of chapter 1. Christ is here right by your shoulder. Uh, The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. 
For in, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or authorities, all things have been created through him and by him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's right there. Right? And so I think the challenge that Paul is, is issuing here is for us to recognize that that is where we are. And that regardless of the circumstances, and there are going to be some crappy circumstances that these people are going to have to deal with, there are crappy circumstances that we have to navigate all the time. But the one that holds it all together, he is with us. And that not only is the one that holds all, but, but that God himself, that it's like this shell around us both, that God is, that we, our life is hidden, not in, a, not in the wood running away from God, but again, God is with us and for us. If God the Father and God the Son are, if we are engulfed in their life, then all of the things that we do, that we're tempted to do to try to derive our value from, how we look, what we have, uh, our achievements, all those things are good. But it will, they will not hold up to the, to the onslaught of the challenges of the world. But this will. This will. And we are secure. We all we we have this this these this foundational desire. All of us do. Um, we have this desire, and um, think it's like when you think about the four four things I'm fixing to say. They kind of come in waves, and maybe you're focused in on one at one particular time in your life, and then that changes to another. But all of these things are working together. That we have this desire to be seen, safe soothed and secure we want that even for guys i mean to be soothed as a guy that's a little bit uh, i don't know about that but what we want we want we want this sense that all is well and i think that's what being soothed is i mean when we soothe our kids after they've been hurt what do we want we want to feel as if all is going to be well seen Safe, soothed, secure. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So I go back to the original question. What primarily, first and foremost, makes you feel good about you being you? What motivates you? What drives you to put your feet on the floor in the morning and to go and take life by the tail and to live it? regardless of the circumstances. This is the invitation that Paul is making to us to see ourselves in that way. Because when we do, absolutely nothing, nothing can stop us. Nothing can stop us for bearing fruit on our tree 
for which the world can eat off of and be nourished and transformed. Going back to the first quote, the word became text to provide a place of transforming encounter with God so that the word might become flesh in us for the sake of the world. So that the world can taste and see that the Lord is good. Because we, hidden with Christ, are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. All right. So, if this is where we can, in our minds, and Paul is very, 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 very focused on where our mind is, right? Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. What's above? This truth. That's what's above. Not on earthly things. Set your mind on things above. Um, That is the grace of God. Trusting in God's gift. Which takes us to the the third uh, quote that I want to share with you. It's a quote by uh, the one and only uh, Dallas Willard. One of the things that we fall prey to is Protestants. We are saved by grace through faith alone. And everybody says, amen, right? But we get confused. Yes, grace, that word in Greek is charis, uh, which means gift. It's also the root, root, root word of kara. Do we, anybody know any karas in the room? I mean, the word kara is a, is a uh, connected word to charis. Kara means joy, right? And so it's like this, that when we, joy is another desire we all have. We want to experience joy. Well, the joy, biblically speaking, only comes through receiving the gift of God, which is through his grace. But that receiving while it is there and it is free for the taking. We can't earn it, but there is effort that we must put out to receive it. I like to, to you know, I'm a sports guy, right? So this is the way, I, you know, just like the coaches, get your head out, right? Uh, so just like a quarterback and you kind of picture Jesus as the quarterback and the football is his grace. Now you're just going through life and you're walking away from Jesus and he's trying to throw the ball to you and he's just constantly hitting you in the back of the head with his grace, but you have not put yourself in a position to receive it. The effort that you and I must put out is to actually turn towards Jesus and to receive the grace that he's trying to, the work that he is trying to do in our lives, right? And so here is the effort. So grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action. Turning, looking, opening your hands, focusing on the risen Christ. Effort, uh, effort is action. Earning is is attitude. You have never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. Because once we are truly touched, 
by the deepest realities of who, what God in Christ has done for us. And we have received that grace. That way, while it may start out being very narrow, it will open up and we will be compelled to turn our attention to receiving it. And so what Paul is going to do in these next uh, verses here, beginning in verse 5, he is going to say, okay, there's going to be some things that we are going to have to pay attention to, that we're going to have to shed. He uses this imagery of this clothing imagery. There are going to be things that we have to take off, right? Now, think about this. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden? They covered themselves with fig leaves because they were insecure. They were afraid, right? Now, God gave them some better clothes. Uh, I happen to believe that's the first act of grace. It involves a death. Think about that, that, uh, that grace always involves some sort of death. Even for us to give grace to someone else that has to like if somebody really hurts you or offended you to give grace to them to forgive them you have to die to your desire to exact revenge or to withdraw from the relationship that is an act of sacrifice all right so here we go so there's these fig leaves that we attempt to cover our nakedness with and that is what paul is asking us And that's the effort that we have to put in to recognize and to let go of the ways that we do that. All right. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Remember, he's saying keep our eyes above. And so we've got to gaze down in what ways am I holding on to these things of the world? Sexual immorality impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, we're not going to go through all these in depth tonight. We're, we're going to go ahead and stop here, and we'll pick up at verse 5 next week. But I want you to ponder something. Um, the end of that, that verse, it says, is idolatry. So I'm curious what you think. Is greed the only thing in that list that is idolatry, or is idolatry everything in the list? I don't know. I want you to think about it. I tend to the latter, but the the grammar doesn't quite work out. It should be are instead of is, right? And I'm gonna I'm gonna go check my check the Greek next week to uh, to make sure that I'm not missing something there. But remember, an idol. An idol is anything that we seek to derive our value, meaning, and security from other than God. That is an idol. I think New Testament speaking anyway. Like, strictly speaking for a, uh, like, the people of Israel coming out of, uh, of slavery in Egypt, an idol was a statue but what did you do to the statue? Well, you carved it out of, this, out of this wood. You overlaid it in gold. And then you fed the statue. You kept it in a prominent place in your house. And you, you took care of it. Why? 
so that the God that was represented by that statue would see, oh, look how wonderful he thinks I am. So I'm going to take good care of him. It was always a transaction of manipulation. So that doesn't change. Idolatry is a way in which we manipulate certain situations, and I think this whole list, uh, whole list uh, speaks to that, that we engage in those ways in order to find peace and security. So we will pick up there next week. What are your questions? All right. Steve, this isn't a question, but as I remember your, during your earlier remarks this evening, you mentioned that the word image, I presume in Greek, is icon. That is, is that correct. correct. Well, I was a little bit curious about that and a little bit of humor because one of the very uh, prominent investors in the United States, some say a corporate raider, is a guy named Carl Icahn. And Icon uh, proceeds to get a c control of these corporations by placing people who are loyal to him on the corporate board of directors. Okay. Some would say Icon is a ruthless corporate raider. I don't know if that's true, but many of the share owners of the corporation that he's trying to raid and get control of would benefit also, as would Carl Icon. So there again, it was a little bit humorous to me. And I might say this, Carl Icahn is Jewish. Well, there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Very good. Very good. What else? Right here, up here, Daniel. Do you think that Adam and Eve were real people, or is it an allegorical tale? <laughs> I know that's a hard one, but that's something that bothers me. <laughs> what if they? What if it's both? How could it be both? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a way for me to get out of answering a tough question. So if you had to pin me down and say, Steve. You got to answer this question. I'm going to say they're real people. You think they're real people? They're real people. Um, there are some dynamics as, you know, what I will say is this. We have tried to make Genesis into a science book. It was not written as a science book. It was written as a story. It's our story. Part of the grand story of salvation history about how God has been at work to create the world. And God didn't let it go to pot. But God is at work to redeem and to restore his good world. And how all the little details of that pan out relative to science, I don't know. But what I do know is that is true. And so I believe they were, they were two real people. I believe that. Uh, well, it concerns me that, that everyone else after them have suffered because of the bad mistakes that the two of them made. But you're, you're, but one of the th one of the th one of the ways the story is supposed to work, Sherry, it is. Oh crap! I've done the same thing. I have chosen 
to seize autonomy from God and sought to define my life separate from God instead of in relationship with God. And that is what, and so we all, we've all done that. We've all, we all, we have all listened to the voice of the snake. We've all become enemies of God. And what does God say immediately after this all happens? Is that there's going to be somebody. There's going to be somebody that's going to set this all right. And he is going to crush the serpent's head. The one who's whispering in our ears. He, it is going to, in that crushing of the serpent's head was the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Right? And so now, since we have been caught up in that death and in that resurrection, we are now free, once again, we are free to orient our life to God again. That is the story that the whole story is supposed to tell. Does that help? Yeah. Felipe, last one. So um, there's there's a book that uh, it just came out and I haven't read, but it's it's, it's called The War on the West, and it's uh, it talks about uh, a part of it is the war on religious values. Yes. So uh, one of the things that we uh, that we have is benefits from. The Christian values yes. throughout history. Yes. And we always hear uh, the bad things about the church. That's right. It's very, uh, it's very uh, on the uh, upfront of anybody. I mean, anybody that you talk about any issues, they would they can bring in uh, what has been wrong with the institution of the church. That's right. Uh, but there has been like the way we see society today is. Uh, because of the Christian values. And there's proof that we as people wouldn't arrive to uh, civilize or without the Christian values, without the values of right. uh, uh, value of life and, uh, and all those things that they're very dear to us. Now, we have, as, the, as Christians uh, or and I wouldn't say uh, I would, uh, but all the Christians that have come before us have solved a number of problems. Yes. We live uh, a very comfortable lifestyle mm-hmm. these days because of these people. There's lots of history that bring us up to today, but uh, all of those things uh, today people take for granted, and we don't really say or we don't really have a good uh, upfront story about like, hey, we solve all these problems. Yeah. They're not a problem anymore because we solved them. Right. But you should be aware that we did solve them because <laughs> we could be right back where we were. That's right. And it's the cycle and how do we, and I, and I think that's kind of like where everybody here is part of that story is like, you gotta keep that alive to say, hey, we weren't that way. That's right. Point. But it, it is even hard for me to describe what those are. Yeah. Because they're so far 
pastors. Right. But now that you talk to young kids and they think this is the way the world has always been. Mm-hmm. And that you don't need God and you don't need because right. I can achieve everything on my own. Right. And I can derive to my own conclusions and mm-hmm. my, my thinking alone will get me to greatest things. So how do we deal as a yeah. Christian community with bringing some of those kind of concrete uh, things that the church has done for us? I was actually ready to answer this question, Felipe. That's a great question. Um, in the West, and it may not be quite to Midland yet, but it's getting close. We live in a post-Christian culture. Okay? So as much as we want to say, no, 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 that's not true. It, okay, let's just name it. And the reason that we are now in a post-Christian culture is that there has been a radical rejection of the meta story of Scripture. But this grand story from Genesis to Revelation, there has been a rejection for what? For the autonomy of the self. So I can be any, anybody that I dream up, 